You know, it is a shame, man. It's, you know, Christians, we claim to have the answer. We claim to have the answer of forgiveness. And yet Christians, as much as almost anyone, live in perpetual guilt. I mean, if Jesus really was the answer for our sin, then why are we walking around so condemned all the time? And why are we walking around condemning everyone else all the time? I know it's because we've been taught to, but <laughs> thank God we can be retaught. Amen? Thank God we can repent. We can repent just means to rethink. It's metanoia in Greek, to have a change of mind or a, a new paradigm or a mental shift. You could call it any number of things. Uh, turn over a new leaf. Look at it from a new perspective, whatever. But it's to, it's to look at something uh, from the perspective of God. And so as a born-again person, I can repent of sin, one way to do so is if, I, if I'm self-plagued with constant guilt and condemnation all the time, then I can repent of that or rethink that by looking at it from God's perspective. And God's perspective is Jesus was sufficient for our forgiveness. And I don't have to live plagued with condemnation and guilt and torment in my conscience all the time. Thank God. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, the Holy Spirit gets uh, blamed so often as that nagging sense of guilt, that, we, that cloud that's over us all the time, constantly telling us what's wrong with us, why we're not good enough, why we're not righteous enough, why we're not holy enough. That gets blamed on the Spirit of God. And Jesus in John 14 actually called him the comforter, not the habitual nagger. Amen? So thank God we can, we can recognize what's God and what's not through the Word of God. Because our feelings lie to us. Your feelings, you know, you just wake up first thing in the morning sometimes and you feel like a sheep-eating dog. You've not even had time to go sin yet. You know what I mean? But you just wake up feeling guilty. It's absurd. And we don't know what it is, so we just say, well, it's probably the Lord, you know, trying to get at me for something. You know, it's just absurd. Jesus said the Spirit of God would come and convince the believer of their right standing with God. He would convince us of our righteousness, John chapter 16. And thank God He does. Amen? Okay, well, um, let's go ahead and get to the Word here. And I'm going to pick up um, just where we've been. We've been teaching for a few weeks now on what I call Galatians, uh, putting the amazing back into grace. And you know this church, we call it Grace Life. The reason we call this church Grace Life is Romans chapter 6, and I'm not turning there, but verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in the King James, but in the Greek it says, But the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the grace of God is eternal life, and I know God's uh, understanding and understanding of His love, of His mercy, of His goodness, of His grace revealed in Jesus uh, has impacted me as much or more than anything else uh, thus far in my walk with the Lord. And so we need to be bombarded, our minds do, with an understanding of God's grace and understand that grace is much more than just, oh, I'm saved by grace, that's it. And so we need to understand that grace has everything to do with our walk with God, with Christian growth and with uh, the blessings of God, the power of God at work in our lives and all of these things, and it's just so important to understand these things. Um, and so the book of Galatians is a great place uh, to delve into. Romans is really good. Hebrews is really good on this topic. Galatians is also, Galatians is Paul's book where he goes gloves off. 
You know, with the Romans, it was a nice professional, uh, legal almost, uh, uh, line upon line, uh, under a microscope type of thing. And then Galatians, Paul is like gloves off, uh, time to throw down. You know what I mean? Just kind of that mentality about it. And so, uh, in his defense of the goodness of God and how the dispensation of law has passed off the scene, okay? Now, uh, with that in mind, we're going to pick up just right where we left off. Left off. So, I'm going to start, yes, it's Galatians, and we're going to get there, but we're going to start in Romans, right where we left off last week. Romans chapter 10, probably be in the King James all morning, uh, maybe, maybe not, we'll see. I'm going to pick up right Romans chapter 10. All right. Verse 4. Now check this out. Paul says this. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for right standing with God to everyone who believes. Now, it's really interesting. In Galatians, the church at Galatia there, it was written strictly to Gentiles who had no knowledge of Judaism, or no personal experience, more than likely, in Judaism. Uh, they had no Jewish background. The Roman church was comprised of Jews and Gentiles, all right? Um, and just so you know this, uh, Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews, once again, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, Jewish people, all right? And there is actually, just so you know, there's a lot of debate over who's the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, let, me, let me say this a couple of things in passing here. This stuff interests me and helps me and solidifies me. Uh, just in terms of the, the, the Bible, the book we call the Bible, particularly the New Testament, in terms of works of antiquity, there are far, 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 far more documents of New Testament documents than any other work of antiquity. Nothing else even comes close. There's not even a close. Even biblical uh, people who are critics uh, against the faith, like Bart Ehrman, for example, a leading critic against Christianity, an apostate person who once believed and now doesn't, uh, even he admits there's no comparison. There is no close second place. So the so. Because people want to make you think, oh, you still believe that old book? Oh, there's not enough evidence. Actually, there's far more evidence for that book than any other work of it. Nothing else even comes close. Bart Ehrman actually used the word, uh, uh, one gentleman asked him, would you say there's an enormous gap between how many New Testament documents we have and whatever else comes second? He said, I wouldn't say it's enormous. I would say it's ginormous, the gap. So we have much reason, all right? Now, that being said, uh, nobody knows for sure who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, one reason we tend to think Paul, I know this is a bit, I hope this doesn't bore you. This lights my fire. I love this stuff. Um, and we need to know this stuff. We need, there are reasons that we believe what we believe, and we need to know those reasons, all right? Uh, one reason we believe that the book of Hebrews was possibly authored by Paul is because one of the oldest documents we have of the book of Philippians also has Hebrews on the same papyri document. And so we know for sure that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, and we actually have an old document where Hebrews is also on the same document. And so that's one of the reasons that still doesn't necessarily definitively prove it, but uh, it, it helps the cause. Anyways, if that interests you, then good. <laughs> if, you, if I just bored you for one minute, sorry, all right? But we need to know these things, man. It, it's good to understand these things, amen? Right now, the oldest, the oldest document 
that we have, I say we, I mean the world, the church, the oldest biblical New Testament document that we have dates back to 125 A.D. Now, there have been some documents recently found that they think are before that. All right, now we think Jesus died in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., one or the other. There's a little discrepancy on it, like a three-year discrepancy on the turn of the A.D. And so, but basically, 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. is when Jesus died and resurrected. So you think about that. That's just really one generation removed to 125 A.D. That is phenomenal that we have thus far that close to the actual firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. 125 A.D., that is absolutely phenomenal, all right? So again, you know, we, we have reasons to believe these things. Okay, moving on. Nerd moment out of the way. Hallelujah. All right, once again, now check this out. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law. Now the word end, am I on? Hallelujah. Okay. Christ is the end of the law for right standing with God or righteousness to everyone who believes. Now the word end in this verse is the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, telos, telos, telos. And all it means is termination or the limit at which a thing ceases to be. That's what the Greek word telos means. So Jesus is the termination of the law, or Jesus is the limit at which the law, the law of Moses ceased to be for right standing with God to everyone who believes. All right? So Jesus... Jesus was the sacrifice. His sacrifice was the, the stamp, out of date, done, null and void, no longer in effect for the law of Moses. And so now right standing with God comes strictly through belief in Jesus. And one of the old sayings of the church is salvation or right standing with God is by grace alone through faith alone, in Jesus alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or in Jesus alone. And I would certainly attest and uh, agree with that statement. And that's hard. And again, I say it very often, the easiest thing in the world to do is to backslide into legalism. You know, and we do it all the time. Now, how do we do that? Well, let's say I'm praying for something and a month has gone by and it's not happened yet. And in our mind, we start playing these religious games. I've not prayed enough last week. That's probably what it was. I didn't pay for that person's gas that one day. I felt like I was supposed to. That's what it was. So we start backsliding into performance and disqualifying ourselves from things that our performance never qualified us for in the first place. Amen? Now, I would recommend obeying God, but man, it's Jesus' obedience that qualifies us for the blessings of God, not our own personal works of righteousness. Thank God. <laughs> All right. Now, again, Christ is the end of the law. He's the termination of the law for right standing with God to everyone who believes. Now, we're going to look at some stuff here in a moment about Abraham, who's the father of our faith, and some of the implications of that. Before we get to that, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. I'll have it up here, chapter 1. This is a verse that I quote very often, but sometimes it's better to not just quote stuff, but to go to it and actually look at it. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> I want you to see this. Let's start here in verse 5. Paul to Timothy, who was a minister, says, Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience 
and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, just empty noise, in other words. Now check out, how do they swerve away into vain jangling? Well, he tells us in this verse here, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor what they're trying to affirm. So their error was trying to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus, all right? Now check this out, verse 8. But we know that the law is good, so, so, and that's important. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. The law is good, but the problem is I'm not in and of myself. And that's the purpose of the law, the law of Moses, all right? The law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Well, Paul, how do we do that? We'll keep reading. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Well, 2 Corinthians, and I don't have it up here, but man, you need to know this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You know, we're going to turn there after I read this. Check this out. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, a born-again person. Thank God for that. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, them that defile themselves with mankind, manstealers, liars, perjured persons, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, so the law is for spiritually dead people, all right? Uh, I don't have it in my notes. If you would, though, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm sorry, I, I don't have it up here. If you can, I'd like for you to see it. I don't think I have it anywhere in here. I don't think I do. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So, I'm sorry, I don't have it up here. It's not in my notes. I have to preload all that. It says this, For he who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, for he, in the King James, for he who knew no sin was made sin. Now, the King James says he was made to be sin. The words to be are not there in the original language. So literally, it says he was made sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All right? So the law, again, is not made for a righteous person. Well, who is a righteous person? A person who's put their faith in Jesus and the salvation that he offers. Amen? So thank God, Jesus is the end of our relationship with the law in terms of relating to God, all right? So the law is good to show me my imperfection. The law is good to show me my insufficiency. The law is good to show me that God has a perfect standard that I can never meet. And the purpose of that is to drive me to calling out for mercy. And when we do that, we can receive the free gift of righteousness, okay? Now, We're going to look here in Galatians chapter 3 and really get into the meat of this thing here. Galatians chapter 3, and I will have this up here. And for the most part, we've been going through a lot of this. We didn't cover all of chapter 1, but we're kind of, we've been quickly going verse by verse, which I know can be a little more, can be seemingly more tedious, but man, I think... Uh, that we can benefit from, from such exposition of the Scriptures. Check this out. So, if you remember last week, we, we went to the book of Acts, chapter 15, 
where we had what's commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Some people call it the Jerusalem Controversy. And it was where the, the ministers and people of the church were debating over whether Gentiles could be saved and whether once they were saved, they had to come under the law of Moses. And so they went to uh, the head of the church, the elders, James and the apostles, and discussed it. And we know their verdict was, no, we can't force them to come under the law of Moses. We could never keep the law. We can't try to put that same burden on them. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone and nothing else. All right? So there's where we were last week. Now check this out. Paul says this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Again, we really see his attitude here in, in, this, in this scripture. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. Word foolish there just means dumb. You know, what is wrong with you? And that's kind of harsh, you know. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now that word bewitched, you look it up in the Greek, it means to cast a spell or to, uh, to basically to curse someone in their thinking. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was evidently set forth and crucified among you? In other words, Paul's saying, I preached the gospel so clearly to you, it's as if you were there when it happened, the, the cross. Verse 2, this only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And you can take that any way you want to. You can take that as the new birth or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at it, whatever. It's the same. for Either, either case is true. Verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected or matured by the works of the flesh? And you read that and you're like, Well, yes, Paul. That's what I've been told all my life. That's exactly how it works. And so all of us who have believed in that system to varying degrees, we've been bewitched. And Paul is strongly coming against, because it preaches so good. You know, it preaches really good. People love it. We've all probably agreed with it and heard it and amended it at one time or another, that yes, America needs to return to God's law. No, it doesn't. It needs to go to Jesus. There is no salvation in the law. There's salvation in Jesus. Amen? So, the, you know, a lot of that stuff, I've spent a lot of time on that. I'm not trying to labor that point. But nonetheless, check this out. Verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet is in vain? Check this out. He, therefore, that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you or operates in the power of the Holy Spirit, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now check this out. This is pivotal. Now we're really getting into it here. Check this out. He says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or right standing with God. All right, now we're going to turn back to the book of Genesis. And I will have it up here, chapter 12. And just for your personal notes, uh, and I know I'm covering a lot already and we're going fast. I hope that's okay. In Genesis chapter 11 is where we have uh, the very first uh, mention or uh, accounting, whatever, record of Abram, who became Abraham, which is really important because uh, Abraham is, there's at least three major religions that claim he's the father of their belief, of their faith, uh, of their relationship with God. So Abraham, of course, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, we would all basically consider him uh, 
the father of the origin in many ways of the bloodlines of, of Israel and all that, of the faith. Now, again, th this is really interesting too. Genesis chapter 11, we have the first mention of Abram. And Abraham, or Abram at the time, um, was basically doing pretty well from what we can tell. He, he seemed to be fairly blessed and have money and have goods, had servants and all that type of stuff, all right? Now, this is really interesting. The place where Abraham was originally from is a place called Ur, U-R, Ur of the Chaldees, C-H-A-L-D-E-S, Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Abram, uh, this is also interesting. In Ur of the Chaldees, uh, and this is all historical, there was, um, you won't see all of this per se right in the Scripture, but we know it from history. At Ur of the Chaldees, and this is really interesting, there was a temple which housed 360 pagan gods. And, and Abraham was a pagan worshiper, uh, him and all his people probably, of these pagan gods. Now, one of the gods uh, at the temple, I don't know the name of the temple there, that, that housed all of these uh, idols and, uh, for pagan worship, there was a moon god. Anybody want to guess what that moon god's name was? Allah. Allah. Yeah. Ever heard of him? Islam. What's one of the main symbols of Islam? The crescent moon. So we see, good guess though, we see the origins of that from way back then. And if we jump ahead, and we're not going to read all this today, we, we see a lot, and we know, you know, like you can't turn the news on without seeing it. Um, we know uh, the ongoing struggles based upon people's claim of, no, we're the true lineage of Abraham. No, we're the true seed of Abraham. And so we see that according to the Old Testament scriptures, uh, based upon Christians and Judaism, that the, the promised blessed seed of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob was later renamed by God Israel. Israel. All right? So Israel. According to us, Isaac is the blessed seed. According to Muslims, the people of the book, which is also known as Jews and Christians, perverted the book, perverted the scriptures. It was Ishmael all along. All, all along. Blah, 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 blah. Get my words out here. All along. Now, really interesting also, I know this is, is this boring? I hope this doesn't bore you. This stuff, we need to know this stuff. And I, it's not, uh, it's a little more uh, educational here, some of this, but I think it's good for us. Um, Muhammad, for example, who lived in the 600 AD time frame, uh, belonged to uh, what was known as the Koresh tribe. Uh, probably the most prominent English spelling of that is Q-U-R-A-Y-S-H, the Koresh or the Koresh tribe. And uh, again, he was well-to-do. His family was well-to-do. And uh, his family, out of the Koresh clan, uh, they were descendants of Ishmael, the Arab seed, uh, you might call it, um, also, in his community in Mecca, worshipped many gods. There were many pagan gods. But interestingly, the main god of the Koresh tribe, or the Koresh tribe, was the moon god, Allah. So there's where we see the origins of all these things, all right? And so it goes way back to Ur the Chaldees, all the way up to the time of Muhammad. And, of course, Muhammad's conquest later, be later became Allah, the, the moon god, Allah. Allah is the only uh, true god, all right? And so there's a whole lot we could look into that and study. And I encourage you, study those things. They're very good to know. We need to know some of these things. And so there's where some of those things come from, all right? 
And so just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was later called Israel, had 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12, 12 sons and patriarchs, Ishmael also had 12 princes among him. All right, now moving on there, check this out. Here's the first encounter where we have God and Abraham, the true God, uh, encountering one another. Genesis 11 gives us Abraham's lineage, and then it immediately jumps into his encounter with God here. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get you out of your country, Ur of the Chaldees, and from your kindred, your family, and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. Now that is phenomenal. God comes to him and he says, Abram, pack your bags, get the family, get the wifey, get everything you need to get, and hit the road. And he says, Lord, you know, where am I going? Well, start going. You know, it would be like, start driving and I'll tell you where. You know, it's the Holy Ghost GPS, man. You know, you know, that's, I am utterly dependent. Kara and I drive to my dad's house a couple of times a year, always use a GPS, no matter how many times we've made the trip. Uh, Abraham had a heavenly GPS, man, straight from, uh, straight from the Lord, all right? And that's basically what happened here. Check this out, verse 2. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, we've all heard of the blessing of Abraham or God's promise to Abraham. Right here it is. This is it. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abram... Uh, the name Abram uh, uh, just means uh, basically exalted father, all right? The name Abram. Now, when it was Abraham, the meaning changed. Uh, but just for your notes there, if you're taking notes or a mental note, whatever, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, or you could say father of many nations, father of a multitude. Now, I want you to notice this here, though, in verse 2, because Paul uses Abraham in Galatians to defend righteousness by faith instead of righteousness by the works of the law. Notice verse 2 again. The Lord tells Abraham unequivocally, without any performance on Abram's part, he says to him, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless them that bless you, curse those that curse you. So God comes to him without any strings attached and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a great nation come out of you. And nowhere in the clause was there any fine print. You know, if you do this, if you do that. If you, of course, he agreed to follow God, but you understand. The blessing of God came before any performance was carried out on Abraham's behalf. And in, in a very practical sense... We need to approach the things of God that way. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can come boldly before God's throne of unmerited favor to find grace, unmerited favor, to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. All right? Whatever way you need to apply that, the understanding is if it's a throne of unmerited favor and I have to go there to get mercy and grace to help, well, there's an implication there that I don't have personal worth and personal, uh, I don't have anything to bargain with. You know what I mean? 
God, I promise, I, I, I promise I'll go to church all next month if you'll just, you know, help me get the car fixed, whatever, you know, get the extra money we need, you name it, whatever it is. And so the problem is it never began with any self-worth that we had on our, on our own behalf. And we do this all the time. You're walking down the road. You know, I, it, you can almost guarantee it happened here when they had the 4th of July parade. You know, there was bound to have been someone walking down the road, and they look down, and lo and behold, they find a $20 bill or a $50 bill. And in our goofy religious thinking, we think, I don't know how you would articulate it, but we think something to the effect of, what did I do to deserve to be the one to find that money? I must have done something right yesterday or whatever. We think we only get strictly what we deserve from God. But thank God we do not get what we deserve in and of ourselves from God. Amen? And we see that example here with Abraham. God comes to him with absolutely no promises, no bargaining, no conditions on Abraham's side of the deal. And he says, I'm going to bless you. Now that is profound because even today we teach people, if you do X, Y, and Z, God will bless you. When the reality and the proper thinking is God has unequivocally and irrevocably blessed us, and out of that blessing, we're empowered to obey. That's a whole different system, amen? It's a much better system. You think about it. When we get saved, when a person puts faith in Jesus, is born again, we don't bring anything to the table to bargain with except sin. You know, that's, that might be the only thing we bring into the equation here. God, I'm a sinner. Help. You know, and that's it. And so it's a one-sided affair. Our will is involved. Our faith is involved. I understand that. But in terms of performance or deserving or worth or anything like that, we bring nothing to bargain with whatsoever. All right? It, it's a one-sided exchange here. And we see that uh, in this example here with Abraham. Now turn with me, if you would, to, of course, I'll have it up here. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to look at something very important here too. Genesis chapter 15, and we'll just start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, I am your exceeding great reward. And Abram said unto the Lord, uh, said, Lord God, uh, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and to one born in my house is my heir. In other words, I don't even have a kid. Help, you know. He said, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This Eliezer that's born in your house, a servant, will not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad. This is absolutely phenomenal to me. And let me just say, I know I'm covering a ton of stuff this morning. I, I hope it's resonating. I trust that it is. We have to keep one thing in mind here as we're looking at this. Isaac, Abraham, his seed Isaac, was obviously a literal person. We understand that. But it's, it's super... I can't stress it enough. It's extremely important that we understand, and we're going to see this more in Galatians, that the true seed of Abraham was the Messiah, Jesus, all right? We have to keep that in focus as we read these things. So it's like, it's like there's a dual, a dual uh, prophetic truth. On, it's like a coin. There's, it's one coin, but there's two sides to it. So God's talking to him about Isaac, but in reality, it all has to do with Jesus, who's the true seed of Abraham, Okay. 
Now, he says this, verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars. That means, that word tell means, it can mean number, it can also mean declare. Uh, tell, number, declare uh, the stars if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall your seed be. Now this is phenomenal that God, think about this, God is helping Abraham to have faith. And God, because a lot of times we're plagued with the thought, well, if I just had more faith. Well, God is determined that we do have enough faith. Now Abraham, of course, as far as we know, there was no book. There was no religious book from God at that time that Abraham can open up and look at. You know, 1 John chapter 5 says, if we pray anything according to His will, we know that He hears us and we have the things that we've asked of Him. Well, what is the will of God? The Word of God. I could go to the Word. The, the Word of God is the last will and testament. So there's a lot of stuff I don't even have to pray about. I can just go to the Word and find out what my inheritance is. Of course, Abraham didn't have a Bible. All right? So God takes him out and helps him to have faith. Romans chapter 10 talks about this. John chapter 8 talks about the same encounter here. So God takes him out and says, Look, if you can count those stars, that's comparable to what your seed is going to be like. All right? Which is just phenomenal. Then he says this. Uh, and he said unto him, So shall your seed be. Check this out. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord... And he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, that's where we started at in Galatians chapter 3. And I think it was verse 6 that says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, this account is extremely important. This is the first time in all the scriptures where the word believe, or in any capacity, believe, faith, uh, and righteousness are used. And so that's really important, and we see here that the first mention of belief and righteousness are used together. So, in other words, this pattern follows through the Scriptures. Uh, in study of Scripture, it's called the law of first mention. The very first time these things are mentioned, righteousness, for example, it's mentioned alongside with belief. So, right standing with God has always been about faith. It's always been about Believing God, all right? And so we see this account here. <clears throat> now, let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. Show you a couple of things here. I know we're covering a lot of stuff. I'm aware of that. hope it's not too much stuff. Check this out. Genesis 17.5. He says, Neither shall your name anymore be called Abram. You know what? Let's back up. Let's, let's just start in verse 1 here. This is too good to pass over. It says, When Abram was 90 years old and 9, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I'm the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. He said, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. That is phenomenal. And you shall be a father 
of many nations. Verse 5, neither shall your name anymore be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations will I make of you, and I will make you exceeding fruitful. I will make nations out of you. Kings shall come out of you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Check this out and your seed after you. Now, the seed, again, in the natural was Isaac. But in the prophetic reality, it was Jesus. All right? We need to understand that. And your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and your seed after me. And then he gets into some other things there. Uh, We're going to probably stop on that right there. But I want you to see here, again, this is the account where the Lord comes to him. Now, this is bizarre. You know, we read this stuff, and it's like it's a fairy tale or a fiction or a whatever. Of course, this really happened. I mean, you know, you guys that know me, you came in here, you know I'm Jordan. And so, you know, it, it would have been like opening up the service and being like, uh, by the way, just so you guys know, we're going to have a good time today. Uh, but I changed my name. I'm now, you know, whatever, Stefan. You know, I don't know. Just pick name, right? So it would be like I just changed my name. And you got to think, Abraham had a wife. He had servants. He had uh, heir uh, servants and then their kids, all of that. And he had hundreds of servants. And so, you know, like he had to send out an email to all the staff. I don't know how they did it. You know what I'm saying? But basically he had to go around every time he went to the grocery store. Hey, Jordan. Hey, yeah, yeah. By the way, it's not Jordan anymore. It's Stefan or whatever, you know. He had to go around telling everyone, I changed my name. Well, and then the good question, well, why in the world did you do that? And then he's thinking, oh my God, they're going to think I'm a nut. Well, God told me to. And then about that time you say, oh, okay, well, good to see you. Bye. You know, you think this guy's nuts. You know, I probably would. You know, I mean, you just, it's kind of bizarre, but you know, that's what happened here. And so we see all of this happening here. Now, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to circle back around to Galatians here momentarily, and we'll be finished. So it's, it's extremely important to see, uh, in terms of the covenant, that God, God initiated the covenant. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We were lost, we were without hope, and without God in the world. In other words, we were so extremely, completely, utterly uh, cut off from God, we were so lost, we didn't even know we were lost. You know, there was a, a, a gap that needed to be bridged. Not only could we not do it, we didn't even know the gap was there. Utterly, hopelessly lost and gone. And God takes initiative and comes and establishes a covenant. And I'm telling you, there is so much stuff uh, in the covenant and with Abraham. It is just absolutely phenomenal. But it's super important to see that the promise, the covenant, was between God and Abraham and his seed. So I want you to think with me here. We're not going to have time to cover this in depth today. We may look at it more in the coming weeks. But the covenant, if you remember, we read it. God says, you and your seed. And we know the true seed, Galatians tells us, is Jesus. So I want you to think about this. God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. And he used Abraham as the intermediary. Now that's important, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But primarily, mankind uh, has stewardship over planet Earth. 
You know, we are all as welcome and free as we want to, to do as much good as we can or to go out and wreak as much havoc as we want to. You know, planet, uh, uh, planet Earth is, we can steward it properly or not so much. You know what I'm saying? God has given mankind, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, dominion or authority or right to govern the affairs of planet Earth as we choose to. Of course, we can cooperate with God and see some good come or not cooperate with God and see a lot of bad come, all right? So God has given dominions, the, the King James word, dominion, authority, right over planet Earth. So th this is kind of offensive to a lot of people's theology. Uh, I'll, I'll try to elaborate it. But because God gave mankind authority, right, reign, dominion on planet Earth, God, please forgive me, don't throw stones at me, needed to use a man. Now, I know he's God, he's sovereign, he's king, he's number one, he's on top of the food chain, nothing else is a close second. I understand that, yes, amen. But God's in God's freedom, in God's sovereignty, he chose to give man free will and stewardship over planet earth, all right? To me, that doesn't make God look limited. To me, that makes God look even bigger, that in the midst of giving mankind a free will, he could still initiate and get this plan to work in planet Earth. That is phenomenal to me. That doesn't work against God's bigness. That, to me, promotes his bigness nonetheless. So he's got Abraham here, and so he says, mankind has authority on planet Earth. If I can get one of them to cooperate with me, we're going to redeem this situation that Adam messed up. All right? So God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm God. I'm going to bless you. Can you handle that? Uh-huh. Boom. Done. Mankind did all he needed to do to, let, to allow God to get his covenant enacted and to get the seed into planet earth. Now, this has everything to do with why Jesus became a man. All right? The scripture tells us multiple places, like Hebrews 9, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Well, why is that? Because it was, the, it was the bloodline of man that let sin into the earth. Therefore, it required human blood to take sin out. Like if I owe Orla $100 and he comes to me, says, hey, it's payday, pay up, and I give him 100 pencils. Well, he's not going to accept that. Why? Because it's not equal currency. All right? Same thing. Blood of bulls and goats could not truly atone for the sin of mankind. All right? So God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a covenant. Abraham, here's what I need you to do. Agree with me. Okay, boom. And at that point, God basically had all he needed to set up a lineage through which he could get the seed, the Messiah, into planet Earth, all right, who was the true seed of Abraham. Now, check this out. We're about to close. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8, says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place. Now, we just read that. We read that, Genesis 12. Abraham, pack your bags, go. When he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he sojourned in, in the land of promise, as in a strange or a foreign country to him, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, uh, the heirs with him of the same promise. Check this out. For he looked for a city whose, uh, which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, I want you to think with me here. In, in closing, everything 
In the Old Covenant, excuse me. In the Old Covenant, these things were types and shadows of the spiritual reality. Fair enough? And we understand that. Sacrifice animals, Leviticus chapter 5, Leviticus chapter 16, take any number of the sacrifices. Well, all of that was a type and shadow of the true sacrifice to come. Of course, that was Jesus. He's the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. But, you know, you could look at any number of things. You could look at the, 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 the tabernacle itself was a type and shadow of Jesus. Uh, you could look at uh, the, different, uh, the different non-animal offerings. There were other types of offerings. Uh, even people in the Old Testament, all of these things were, were types and shadows, all right? We could, we could look at Moses. He was, uh, his life parallels greatly to Jesus. He was born, and the king of the land wanted to kill all the kids, well, we know that same thing happened to Jesus. Well, he was a deliverer, and God raised him up, and he defeated Pharaoh. All right, well, we see that with Jesus. Jesus was raised up by God, and he defeated the true Pharaoh, Satan, spiritual death, sin. He defeated We could go to Joseph. Joseph was, was his father's favorite. We see, and then we see in uh, Matthew 3, this is my beloved son. Well, that's a, that's a parallel of Jesus. And then we see he was betrayed by his brothers. Joseph was. Well, we see Jesus. Jesus was betrayed. John 1, he was in the world that he created and his own knew him not and received him not. So we see all, all, all of this stuff points to Jesus. With that in mind, I want us to understand here that even the land of Canaan, the promised land, or the expression that's used so often, the land flowing with milk and honey, all of that, stick with me here, was a type and shadow of the true new covenant salvation offered through Jesus, all right? The land flowing with milk and honey was not really a type and shadow of heaven. It was really a type and shadow, Hebrews chapter 4, of, uh, of this city here, the city whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews chapter 12 says we've come unto a heavenly Jerusalem. We're not waiting on the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not going to get there one day. We've come unto this city, this city whose builder and maker is God, and it's this land of new covenant salvation that comes through faith in Jesus alone. Amen? Hallelujah. We're going to close here. I know I talked about a million miles per hour today, and we covered a ton of stuff Probably one semester of seminary stuff we cover today, but I, that's just the way it happened, all right? So I didn't necessarily plan on covering so much of that, uh, and if I don't stop, I won't stop. That's why I'm going to stop. But I want us to see today, as we close here, that God is the one who took covenant initi initiative. And we didn't look at it, but we could have looked at Abraham whenever he comes to Melchizedek. And Hebrews chapter 7 talks about it. Abraham and his servants went to war, and it says, the King James says, Abraham slaughtered the kings. So they went and kicked tail and took names, you know what I mean? And on their way back, they encountered another king who just so happened to also be a priest. And what was his name? Melchizedek. And Mel Melchizedek was the king of Salem. The name Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness. Now, I don't personally believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Jesus. I believe he was a real human who lived. I believe he was a type and shadow of Jesus. Uh, so Abraham comes on his way back from war, and he has an encounter with the man who is the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Well, who's that a type and shadow of? That's our Jesus. Amen? 
He comes to him. Now, I want you to think with, with this here. Melchizedek, when they encounter one another, Mel, Melchizedek is fully aware of what just happened to these other kings in their kingdoms and how that the true and living God, the same God that Melchizedek served, is working on Abraham's behalf. So he comes to him, and here's what Melchizedek says to Abraham. He says, blessed are you, Abraham. Blessed are you, Abraham. Think about that. Now, here's what happens. It says that Abraham took a tenth of the spoils of war and gave it as an offering unto this priest of God. But I want you to think with me. The blessing was declared first. Abraham did not give and then get blessed. He was already declared blessed of God. Now, this is a priest. He knows this. And we know from Genesis 12 today, he was already blessed before he ever performed one good thing for God. And Melchizedek comes, he encounters him, and he says, you are blessed of God. And out of that blessing came an ability, a, a corresponding action. Amen. And that's, I want you to see, and I know this has so many implications. Again, we covered a ton of stuff today, probably more than we usually do. Uh, I would say I'm sorry if, if, your, if your brain's gone tilt, but I'm not because I think it was good. <laughs> All right? So this will be recorded and, and uploaded. You can go back and listen to it if you need to today. But I want us to see that, man. God has absolutely declared blessing upon us. Ephesians chapter 1 says, verse 3, we have been blessed, we've been seated with Christ and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is phenomenal to me. God has a blessing for us already, already uh, anchored to us, if you will, before the curse ever comes knocking on our door. God has answers for us before problems ever show up. Amen. Hallelujah. That's our God. If you'll stand up, we'll dismiss here. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I, I really do. I want you to be mindful this week that God is faithful to you because He is faithful, not because you're faithful. I want you to be mindful this week that God, because inevitably we're all going to have issues this week. Sorry. <laughs> you know, if, it's just the way it is. But I want us to be mindful and live in the reality that God has already declared unchangeable covenantal blessing upon us strictly because we're in Jesus and absolutely for no other reason whatsoever. That is a phenomenal thing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, he comes, he's baptized of John, and the Father, when he comes up, the Father speaks audibly out of heaven. And says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At that time, Jesus had not healed one sick person, not preached one sermon, not performed one miracle. Nothing. Why was he pleasing to the father? Because that's his boy. You're God's boy. You're God's girl. And he loves you, and he's for you, and he accepts you, and he's pleased with you for absolutely no other reason. He's pleased with Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, he's pleased with you. And I tell you, God is not only able, but God is willing to work on our behalf as his children. Amen? Hallelujah. I'm going to have to close this out here.